Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falkenstein from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by just off the Australian Open Finals, the very excited Virat Nehru. Hello, hello. Welcome from Federal Land. Yeah, there's been a lot of Federal talk here at Film Fight Club. Um, we promise we will be focusing on films this week as per usual, along with um, Captain American personator Chris Evans, who, due to some logistics, will be joining us later in the program to talk about Sweet Country, the new film by Warwick Thornton. We will also be talking about The Commuter, the new film starring the one and only Liam Neeson, or Liam Neesons, as Keen Peel have affectionately called him. But first, we are talking about the new film starring Australia's very own Margot Robbie, that is I, Tonya, the biopic of Tonya Harding by director Craig Gillespie, who's known for Fright Night and The Finest Hours. Uh, Margot Robbie plays the famous figure skater and champion Tonya Harding. Sebastian Stan plays... Have a partner in the film, Jeff Galuli, and Alison Janney, uh, in possibly an Oscar winning turn, plays Tonya's mother. Now, this film is, and I'm quoting here, based on the irony free true story of, again, quote, wildly contradictory events, focused on, for those who don't recall this event, this occurred in the early 90s, a quite infamous crime which rocked the world of figure skating. Um, for what it's, there's a moment in the film where Tonya Harding, or Margaret's character, says that. There was a time where she was more famous than anyone with the exception of Bill Clinton. Now, I don't know if that's true, but for what it's worth, my earliest recollections of major events in the West, some major events in the Western world beyond Bill Clinton uh, being elected, including this event involving Tonya Harding. Now, there's a lot to say about this film. It is in cinemas now. Virat, what did we think of I, Tonya? It's interesting to think about the film in that sense because, I mean, there is a lot of tongue in cheek sensibility going throughout I mean the opening shot of the film is basically a mockumentary style revisioning of uh, what actually happened and you meet these characters through that lens and in that sense I guess this is the perfect post-truth film you know this is the film of our times where you don't quite know what happened and you are at once a spectator and also kind of participant at the same time and I like that kind of duopoly which operated in this film as to you are also trying to uncover and at the same time you are complicit in what happened in Tonya Harding's actual spectacle. I really do find it interesting how this film does not try to be an authoritative account of events. It's based on different interviews, it's based on different accounts, based on the ensuing court proceedings and we don't know and necessarily entirely what happened there, I guess there are people who know if at all what did entirely, well, for lack of a better word, go down. But we're in a series of, we're seeing a series of films now, The Big Short is a great example, also starring Margot Robbie, where they're not pretending that this is an entirely real account of events, where events are constricted or changed to make more entertaining or engrossing or endearing. A Futile and Stupid Gesture came out on Netflix this weekend. It's the story of the creation of National Lampoon, and they are very active and very candid in deploying this technique. And I think we're going to be seeing in what has been, as Fred said, defined by many as a post-truth age, more and more of these films. But I quite liked the style here. I mean, it's such a debated event that it seemed fitting that they didn't uh, say that, well, yes, we've gone into detail about what's happened here, that this is um, entirely and 100% exactly what happened. I mean, to be fair, uh, just going back to your comment about The Big Short, The Big Short only had Margot Robbie in a 
minutiae sort of sense that she was in a bathtub trying to explain economics uh, to people. And that's probably the only time I paid any attention to any kind of economics lecturing because it had Margot Robbie sipping champagne while in a bathtub. So I guess if they were playing for that, they did succeed. But actually coming back to this other movie, which has a lot more of Margot Robbie, uh, this is interesting because, uh, as Glenn said, and I think this is quite an interesting point to make about we're never quite sure what really happened. And for an incident which apparently has been reported so much, and, you know, if you were growing up back in the 90s, there was no way you would escape what really happened. I think everyone kind of knows, and from the Family Guy episode as well, you probably would have assumed what really happened, you know, in this situation. But at the same time, it's really interesting how the director tries to make the story feel fresh because it is casting doubt on your ability to know. And when you talk about a post-truth film, this is what it's doing. You think you know everything, you know, you think you know the facts, and then you revisit the story, and then you realize, hang on, do I really know the story? And that's what, isn't that what post-truth is about? Well, one thing this film really tries to achieve is create a different picture of Tonya Harding than the public would necessarily know. I certainly didn't know a lot about her background and a lot of things that transpired in her life and in this film. And I think while Craig Gillespie did a good job in this respect, as did the screenwriters, I think a lot of credit has to go to Margot Robbie. She is an absolutely phenomenal actress, and there is nothing quite like seeing a seasoned performer and a talented performer transform themselves on screen. She uh, was known for having a dialect coach. Uh, long prior to her getting cast with Wall Street, and she has been put on many amazing voices, many different films she does here. But the best thing about her performance, I have to give her full credit, is the recreations of the figure skating sequences, including the famed uh, triple actual. It's not quite clear exactly to what extent she was able to pull off a number of these stunts, but she um, recreated and with the music and the skating, she did it very well, as did Alison Janney as her mother. As good as Robbie was, uh, I think Janney actually has the book of Pulse performance here. She's playing a really unsympathetic character, but you can't take her eyes off her the entire way on screen. I was a big fan of uh, Alison Janney going all the way to the West Wing. I think it just this just might be her time to have Oscar gold. I mean, yeah, I mean, a lot of people have played abusive parents and there's some kind of Oscar bait in trying to play a very unsympathetic character and really nailing that role. But Alison Janney really here did a fantastic job and I think a lot of that emotional undercurrent of the film really hinged upon Janney nailing that abusiveness of Tony Harding's mother's character because that's where you really come to see a very different side of Harding. That's something you don't know. I mean, maybe some people, if you've read the memoir of Harding, you may have come across a bit of those uh, family insights, but to really see it on screen and see what she's gone through really paints a very different picture from what was painted uh, in the media spectacle that unfolded back in the day. I think this film is trying to really critique two things. One is one you picked up at the very end, which was media frenzy. And of the two, the other, which is an element of class in modern America, I actually feel the media frenzy is one it didn't do so well. It tried to talk about how media impacts lives. It was very much parable for the internet age. Obviously, the what happened with Tonya Harding occurred pre-internet. And, and I think of the third act of the film, where the, after the major incident takes place, they try to go into this is what how the media treats certain matters, and certainly there's a very um, obvious uh, reference to the O.J. Simpson trial, which occurred the, in the following months, and uh, immediately the scandal, the major scandal in America, which included immediately following the Tony Harding events. But on the matter of class, I feel this film handled uh, those criticisms of 
how class divisions in modern American, America very well. So you have a couple of instances. There's a parting shot in the very last sequence of the film, or I should say the title cards of the film, at one of the characters, which I feel was a little quite unnecessary. And in its depiction of uh, Jeff Galuli's uh, friend, who also plays a major role in events, I feel a little heavy-handed. All we really know about this character is a few tidbits where they were clearly trying to paint a semi caricaturish picture of him. I feel that was a little necessary but otherwise i think the film handled these elements um, exceptionally well talking about class in uh, modern america it's really interesting because uh, you need to think about america's always been obsessed with the girl next door or you know somebody they can get behind in terms of the good girl and uh, tonya harding in that sense did not fit into that kind of stereotype or at least that archetype per se where you know classic example would be that figure skaters usually skate to pieces of classical music and tony harding did not do that and just you know it might seem like a little thing to do but to see how these little acts of rebellion kind of set her apart and actually reminded the world of her class differentiation was a really interesting point, which the film, I think, really nailed pretty well. I'm not sure whether it actually made a stand where it could, in terms of taking that to the next level and actually punctuating the fact of what role class plays in understanding the scandal per se. But it was really interesting to see that this film was not just intent in being a tongue-in-cheek retelling of the whole scenario and actually trying to uncover something deeper within modern America's class consciousness to begin with. It did, and I feel there's a really key scene about halfway through the film with a member of the figure skating board or one of the judges, which really hones in on this. And by and large, the film was very good. I will say I do have one major criticism of it, and that is the presence of Bobby Cannavale, an excellent, otherwise excellent actor who. Um, basically, a lot of this film is told by face the camera, as Brad said in the mockumentary style, and he is this one character playing a reporter who pops up intermittently, purely for exposition dumps, who seems to exist, the only character to exist outside the natural action of the film. And a lot of the faces of the camera were very good when Tonya Harding was recreating one of Rocky's famous running and training montages, apparently, as we are told, did happen. I think it was handled very well, but the other t- times where it wasn't handled. Um, so great. The other thing I'll say about this film is, um, it is it is very blatant in its use of early 90s, late 80s music and fashion, and it's treated not as so much a recent event, but as a period piece. And for am I wrong? But um, the 90s, it's now retro. I, I feel old. And, and, and um, I mean, that's just fascinating to think that the 90s was not that long ago. At least I didn't feel it's that long ago. But for a lot of people, it feels like a completely different world. And maybe that's the boyhood effect that, you know, suddenly you realize that uh, 10 or 20 years is now a generation and people just do not understand how, you know, there was no iPhones back then. Just, just simple things like that. And I, I can now talk to people younger than me, and they just don't imagine a life without an iPhone. And I can I can see that now. Yeah, there's, there's two iPhones. I count two iPhones on the table in front of us as we are doing this. Um, I, Tonya is in cinemas now. The other film we're talking... The second film we're talking about, a very different film indeed, is Liam Neeson's The Commuter. It is his fourth film with John Collette Serra. Um, they have made previously made Unknown, Run All Night, and A Walk Among the Tombstones, which might give you a bit of an idea of the type of films... Um, they oh sorry non-stop was the other one not a walk among the tombstones and those other type of films they are working on together um it is called the commuter but i had a few other working titles which i think might be slightly better um liam neeson on a train liam neeson versus train rail all night 
um, and non-stop to Putnam. Look, there's really, I say non-stop to Putnam because there really is non-stop in a train. They probably would have settled on a ship, but Battleship had already happened. Uh, Virat, what did we think of the commuter? I mean, it's so bad that it's good. I mean, okay, I wanted to hate... Okay, I didn't like this movie, but also I'd probably watch this again more than I'd want to watch Itonia again, to be honest, because this was pure, unadulterated fun. Sometimes you just want to go to a cinema and watch completely ridiculous, absurd things. And Liam Neeson can pull them off with utmost sincerity. And this is something, look, as critics or as people who like cinema or pretending to be somehow purveyors of cinema, we don't give enough credit for. For people who can give utmost credible sincerity to insane depictions on screen. Like Liam Neeson can really commit to a sequence which just blew my mind where he's with a guitar and he completely... I don't know what he did. What did he do there, Glenn? What was he doing with the guitar? I, I, I don't worry. I just think he can't come near mine. That this he is. We have to give this guy full credit. I mean, in the past year, two of his most recent projects are The Commuter and Silence. Like he goes from amazing dramatic stuff. I mean, he did Rob Roy back in the day, and Les Mis, and Michael Collins, and Schindler's List, famously, and now he's doing the series of Taken films and Unknown, and these just really fun things. And you know that he and every single cast member are having an absolute ball on set every day, as are we. One scene you mentioned involving guitar, another was a big set piece, and he is, look, this is a typically, you, you know the shtick here, he's an ex-cop, um, he has a family, and a bunch of quite talented, amazing actors join him on this ride. And you don't really know what's going on. You don't know if he, who's quite the good guy, the bad guy. You sort of do find out later. But it's fun, and I would gladly watch this again. And it makes traveling on trains to me a little... I might be a little wary of this now, going, unless Liam Neeson is there, of course. Are you saying, Glenn, that Liam Neeson in this movie has a special set of skills? Let's just say I was very taken with this film. <laughs> but look, i, I got to say, it's not just Liam Neeson. Vera Famago was in this. Jonathan Banks, who's also in Mudbound, was in here. Sam Neill, who we'll be talking about again later in the program. Dean Charles Chapman from Game of Thrones. I think you have to have a Game of Thrones actor in everything you do nowadays. Roland Moller from Land of Mine was in this. Shazad Latif, who is amazing in the new Star Trek. Uh, Florence Prigg from the um, Lady Macbeth. Like, this has an insane cast. I mean, just to think about that, uh, who, these people who are amazing actors also take up a project like The Commuter. I mean, like you said, and it's interesting to talk about Liam Neeson as a proper actor, as people would say, you know, that he's not just there to collect his paycheck. But the fact that Liam Neeson can commit to something like The Commuter with equal sincerity, and he can also commit to something like The Silence. I mean, these two are poles apart from not just you know, into as films, but also as what cinema ought to be. This is just two very different versions of cinema, and they're appealing to very different people. And yet, Liam Neeson, you cannot fault him for committing to that. And that's something to actually value and cherish. And I would want to make fun of him for doing that, but actually, deep down, I'm jealous of that, because not a lot of people can do that. I don't think they're appealing to different people at all. I mean, I... 
we're, we're in the middle of Oscar season. We're going to be talking about Oscar films in the coming weeks and Lady Bird and Phantom Fred and Shape of Water. And this film is has not and will probably not be nominated for any of the major awards, but it's fun and I'll gladly go see it because I enjoy sitting out with my roommates uh, every, every week and watching a crazy action film where we can laugh and enjoy the one-liners. And, you know, there, there are things he does where you, you know there's a one-liner coming. You pretty much know what it's going to be, but it's always great. And I always enjoy it. And I've seen each of the recent films he's made going all the way back to Taken and even some of the and Batman Begins. And he is an amazing action star. And I'm, I'm just wondering, now that he's done a train movie, now that he's done a plane movie, now that he's done a boat movie, what could Liam possibly do next? Actually, yeah, where could Liam Neeson end up next? Where is his special set of skills most needed? And I was thinking space. Because, you know, the next could be the astronaut. The commuter is there. Or the commuter in the astronaut. Or in the in the space shuttle or something. You know, uh, Gravity with Liam Neeson. I, I would watch that. Or even Arrival, but with Liam Neeson. You know, so that would be interesting. Not a science info dump. Just plain old guitar bashing. I think... Liam Neeson could take gravity. Not the film, just gravity. Like, he, 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 he could. Uh, but so what is he going to space to rescue his daughter? It's like that Guy Pierce movie where there's the president's like 2300-something. 20, or he's, uh, there's commuters in space and he has to save them from someone who's trying to ultimately ransom or blow up the spaceship. Or just Liam Neeson's... Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe he goes ultra-minimalist. Maybe, you know, he's rambles or stumbles upon a Terence Malick film set or a David Lynch film set and you have to figure out what he could do in that universe. I'd actually watch that. For those playing at home, it's 17 minutes into this episode so we and we have not mentioned Terence Malick or David Lynch once, so there we go. I shudder to think of a Liam Neeson, Malick, Lynch space crossover. I mean, that would be a sequel to Song to Song and there would be a guitar there, definitely. So there you go. But I, I, but on like Liam Neeson, I just he is still continuing to make these pictures. Some of them are, and it's a sort of Nicholas Cage is doing similar things where he makes a couple of films a year. Um, is it Nicholas Cage? He won the Oscar for Leaving Las Vegas and immediately made Con Air. And oh dear, Nicholas Cage Liam Neeson crossover. Um, Keen Peel teased the idea of a Bruce Willis Liam Neeson crossover. Um, I would totally see that. I mean, this is even. I mean, even this film is the type of film that merits and could reasonably get. A sequel. The ending is a little wide open in some respects. Um, I, 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 I could see it happening. No, actually, no. Please, please tell us uh, where would you want to see Liam Neeson go next, or at least what would you like him to do next? Because most likely, he would consider your ideas, and he would probably be crazy enough to do that. So, shoot some script ideas, and we'll try to do our best to let Liam Neeson know about what he should do next. Yeah, if you send us your ideas for Liam Neeson titles or Liam Neeson films, we're happy to read them out and fight them about which one is the best on air. Just uh, us, hit us up on the 2SER page on Falcon screen because he's not showing any signs of slowing down. And yeah, he is spectacular. The last thing I really say about this film is we spoke about Murder in the Orange Express at the end of the last year. Uh, we weren't the biggest fans. This is Murder on, what, the Uptown to New York. And it's it's much better I, if that is, I don't know if Murder on the Orange Express is still screening at the odd cinema, but if you have the option of seeing this over that Kenneth Branagh movie, uh, which will more likely than this actually get a sequel, we strongly recommend you check out The Commuter. I mean, yeah. I mean, actually, to think about that, I've been wondering, what would Liam Neeson look like with a mustache? That would be interesting. Didn't he have a mustache in Batman Begins? No, but like Kenneth Branagh-style mustache. One that requires a mustache guard. Oh, yes. You know, Fabergé eggs to go with that. 
And to be honest, you know, this had a commuter, this had a train as well. But this one did not derail. Or did it? You'll have to watch to find out. The commuter starring the one, the only, the amazing Liam Neeson is in cinemas now. The next film we are talking about, it's a very different film. It is Sweet Country. It is the latest film by director Warwick Thornton. This premiered at Venice last year. I was fortunate enough fortunate enough to catch the Australian premiere at the Adelaide Film Festival in October. I heard a lot of tell of the Venice Film Festival. Apparently there was cheers at a standing ovation and certainly it has received that in many of its screenings. Yeah, it won the jury prize at the Venice Film Festival, which is a great honor for an Australian film. We haven't seen an Australian film be this well received in years. And I will note, however, the counterintuitive response of the Adelaide Film Festival was in that screening and it was met with first silence was the impact of it. The first time it was seen oh, yeah. by a major this Australian audience. Oh, yeah, this is a film that leaves you silent. And then major applause, which it thoroughly deserves. Yeah, I caught this at the Winter Film Festival, where people were getting up and cheering at certain moments. The Winter Film Festival is the Indigenous Film Festival, and, uh, yeah, there was there were strong reactions to this film, yes, understandably so. Yeah, the Winter Film Festival opened it this year, last year. It's in its second year. It will screen uh, Winter will screen again in October. For the moment, we are talking about Sweet Country, which is in cinemas now. Again, it is the film by Warwick Thornton. I saw Warwick um, a few blocks from my house the other day. He was actually doing a publicity shot for the film. There was oh, a poster cool. of Sweet Country, and I didn't meet him in Adelaide. But I just wanted to run up and him get and say before he got caught up. You have that he has truly made just an outstandingly brilliant film. It stars um, Hamilton Morris, Matt Day, Brian Brown. And Sam Neill. They're all so good. They are all outstanding. I just want to point out, Glenn, I'm so happy how casually you dropped in your starstruck moment there. Yeah. Like, you know, I just casually... Yeah, well, I interviewed him last year. (laughs) So there. Well done. I've just been put in my place there. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, no, this is fantastic. It's essentially... Maybe you should relay what it's about. Essentially, it is set in rural Australia in the 1920s um, at a very at a time which is different to what it is today, but still has many of the relevant themes and issues that we are continuing to face in modern-day Australia. Um, Sam Neill owns a piece of small property in an area, and he and Ewan Leslie, um, who is another figure, slowly comes onto the property, uh, which is adjoining Sam Neill's property. Brian Brown is the local cop sheriff, and there are Hamilton Morris works on Sam Neill's property and works with him, and there are a series of events which result in Brian Brown's character chasing um, someone who, who, in the course of the film, becomes a fugitive, and yep. and it results in a number of pretty harrowing and pretty impactful and dramatic events, which I think for a modern day Australian audience should not be missed. It's a pretty good metaphor. What it's really about is, to me, the way that it's impossible to create a sanctuary away from racism within a fundamentally racist country. You know, in a racist society, racism is always going to find a way to creep in and uh, there's no escaping it. That That's what I took out of this film. There is a sequence. Le- I, I did, too. I have to say there's a sequence later in this film where um, a number of characters are confronted with something that transpired and happened to a number of um, a number happened to a number of characters in the film, but particularly the impact on one character, which was uh which was we were semi-aware of throughout the film, which we weren't sure of, but which we are told blatantly and bluntly in devastating effect. You see the realization dawn on a number of the figures as it dawns in the audience, and you could hear a penny drop. The it was, it was just one of the more powerful moments I have seen among a number of other powerful moments in this film and within cinema in the past twelve months. The filmmaking here 
is really good. In a time when most Australian films have a kind of stock, bland directorial style um, that is ostensibly all about the landscapes and celebrating our country, but usually doesn't really inspire you much, here's a movie by someone who has a real eye. Warwick Thornton, you know, was a trained cinematographer before he was a director, and this is his most beautiful-looking film. Um, just incredible, what you know, throwback to John Ford sort of westerns. Um, real, a real attention to the brutality of the Australian outback setting, the harshness of the light, the bleakness of the landscape. Amazing use of light and shadow. There's one sequence in this film which is set almost completely in darkness with little bits of light creaking in. And uh, it just brings out the bleakness of what's going on. Um, Another thing that's really worth noting about the direction of this film is it has a really interesting editing style, which seems inspired by Nicholas Rogue, who made movies like The Man Who Fell to Earth and Don't Look Now, where it sort of flicks ahead to moments outside of the linear narrative while um, while you continue to hear the soundtrack of what's going on in the narrative at the moment. So you might see Brian Brown's wife for a moment, and then it flicks to a little moment of a memory from her while the dialogue scene that's going on underneath continues on the soundtrack. So you just see these little interspersed um, vignettes that fill you in on the characters in the world and the contradictions in the characters, it was a strikingly um, original filmmaking vision at a time when Australia has a dearth of that. The most powerful lighting element for me was the sequence where uh, Brian Brown's character goes through a number of travails in the Australian wilderness. Oh, yeah. And and you feel it. It is visceral. It is emotive. And you can almost taste the dust. It is incredibly done. The the editing approach that I'm trying to explain here is used for an amazing kind of shock reveal towards the end of the movie. It's hard to explain what I'm talking about in words over the radio, but I think it'll make sense when you see it, which um, in the hands of a lesser filmmaker could have felt like a cheap trick, um, you know, in order to uh, fool the audience. But here it, it feels like it's implying one thing and then it's revealed to be something else. But what it was implied to be thematically ties to what it actually is and that there's a richness in the way that he's working with imagery and metaphor. The film, and particularly the ending, is deliberately ambiguous and purposely so, and the there are a number of interpretations you could draw from what happened. It I packs t- a punch. I, I take the more sinister interpretation of it. I think many audience members or many viewers will, and that just makes it all the more powerful. There are a few moments where it will... You remember it as you leave the cinema, but I still remember it very vividly mm. long after then. Um, another thing that I actually only thought of recently, having reflected on the film, there's a sequence... It's not as consequential in the course of events as much else that transpires, but there's a scene in the village where they are watching the story of the Kelly Gang, mm. and it reminded me of an excellent scene in a New Zealand film, Lee Tamahari called Mahana, which came out a couple of years ago, where we're watching a film and... Uh, a man on the horse uh, storms in, and it's all about how. And we we talked previously about how film was reflected in cinema, and sometimes it's very just simply grandiose. Oh, look, we're filmmakers. We love film. We love cinema. This is actually no, a very mature, point. clever way of showing this is how we have adapted how we see cinema, how we saw cinema once, and have changed in that respect very greatly. And I think in this context, it also shows how people, you know, can be watching something in a in a film that should. You know, if they sympathize with Ned Kelly, they should be sympathizing with Hamilton Morris's character. But it just shows the um, the hypocrisy 
you know, that fuels racism, essentially. Talking about hypocrisy and things pegging a punch, it is quite, uh, I think the, the power of actually, the film comes out, came out in Australia Day weekend. Yep. So just the timing of that release. I know, itself, very smart. Very smart very release smart, Very time. clever, and it actually forces you to, you know, actually participate in the debate which is happening currently. Exactly. I think it's it's great timing on this. But how great is Brian Brown on another note? Oh, he is... Look, he's... Going back to Breck Morant and a number of films he has done, um, he has done quite well. His traditional fare is drama, and this is in every is a dramatic film, and this is where he belongs. This is one of the best films I've seen him in... Or one of the best roles I've seen him in years. And Sam Neill, too. We're making this sound bleak, and it is, but I wouldn't say it's just a punishing watch, because thinking about Brian Brown's performance... There's bits of comedy, there's bits of black comedy mixed in amidst all the darkness in this film, I would say. A few. I think uh, Sam Neill, too. Like, he yeah, Sam Neill as well. Walk that line. R- He's very done much so. a lot of uh, films, as we've talked about. And It's pretty entertaining. You know, this, this At its core, it's a pretty thrilling narrative. I feel like it could be tighter towards the end. During Brian Brown's pursuit, there's a few moments where I feel the movie's lost its direction a little bit and this could be shorted, shortened. But even in those sequences, I really enjoyed the depiction of the landscape through Thornton, who was his own cinematographer on this film. But um, the opening, and especially the ending half hour, and in the opening half hour are just completely gripping. Um, we've been raving about this film for quite a while now. Uh, it has It's hard to do a modern Western, and, but this it has all the best aspects of a western whether it be the themes whether it be the imagery and it pulls it off with absolute aplomb um i mentioned a few weeks ago that this was in my top five not three films it's definitely my top 10 yeah and um we well i certainly strongly recommend that people seek it out it is in cinemas now and it is not just worth seeing but it is for fans of cinema worth talking about it is pivotal viewing yeah i think it's the first really important australian film we've had in a number of years now so that was Sweet Country. Uh, thank you for joining us on Film Fight Club. Yes, thank you for having me once again, but I have to go now. My planet needs me. <laughs> we'll be back next week. Have a wonderful night. Enjoy movies. Good night. Good night.